This is Swordplay. Alex, a Greenville, South Carolina pastor has defiantly defended getting his wife a $200,000 Lamborghini, citing Ephesians 5 as his reason for doing so. Hold on, Nick. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Let me see. Ephesians 5. Ah, there it is. Ephesians 5, verse 55. You shall give unto the wife of your youth a Lambo. It is in there. Wait a minute. Let me. Are you? Are you sure you're reading the right? No, is that... it's in there. Let's move on now. Questions of <laughs> of the day. This is this is swordplay. We are your hosts. I am Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood. I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. Nick, what's on the schedule today? On this episode of Swordplay, the Book of Jonah. We're going to cover the whole book today. All forty-eight verses. So strap in for the adventure of going deep into the bowels of a sea monster. If you haven't already done so, go ahead and hit pause and go back and read the book of Jonah. Again, just four short chapters, 48 verses, and uh, get familiar with the story itself. And then you can come back, hit play, and we're going to walk through this book bit by bit. Well, Nick, as always, when we start a new book, we want to look at when the book was written. So, Nick, when was Jonah written? It's a good question. Um, There's a school of thought that says that Jonah himself may have written it, and that would put the writing of this book way back in the 8th century B.C. There are problems. The Jonah by the Jonah. Yeah. um, (laughs) There's problems with that. Uh, For one, it's not written in the first person, which you would typically expect from a book that was written by the author. Um, It's written in the third person. Uh, It must be noted, though, that if Jonah did not write the book himself, that it's impossible for us to know for certain who authored it. Uh, Internal evidence could put the date for the writing of this book um, further down the, the, the timeline for example, in 3 verse 3, Nineveh is described in the past tense. Nineveh mm. was a great city, yep. is what the text says there. So a, a date after the fall of Nineveh would put the composition of this book or after 612 B.C., because that's when Nineveh uh, was uh, over overthrown. That's true. Um, the book, we know it was received as canon, part of the Old Testament, among the other uh, 11 minor prophets as early as 200 BC because in the book of Sirach 49 verse 10 it mentions the 12 prophets and so Jonah would be included in that so all that together it would seem that the composition would have to be sometime before 200 BC and sometime after 612 BC um, that's why many scholars put the writing for this book sometime in either the um, exilic or post-exilic years, that is, during the exile or after the exile. Alex, what do you think? Yeah, I do think it would seem strange for Jonah to write a book about his ministry, which would then portray himself as the bad guy. Yeah. So, especially without a last verse in chapter 4 saying something about a moral redemption or a change of heart. In fact, his change of heart in chapter 2 apparently didn't last very long. He returns to his previous attitude by the end of the story. 
the author, uh, I think, like you were alluding to, Nick, remains unknown to us today. But as you said, the exilic or post-exilic, I'm just going to call it the second temple period, that seems like a good fit for its composition. Now, here's a quick note when we say that. So, it doesn't mean necessarily that you believe the book is all of a sudden not true. Right. A book doesn't have to be written during the same time period of the events that the book narrates in order for it to be true. In other words, I believe Jonah to be a true historical account, even though it was likely written after Jonah's lifetime. So just a quick note out there about that. Also, for our uh, extra nerdy Bible students out there, like myself, here's something about the manuscript evidence. So in the Dead Sea Scrolls, there are 10 manuscripts uh, that have the Minor Prophets uh, included in them. So five out of those 10 Minor Prophet manuscripts in the Dead Sea Scrolls contain the Book of Jonah. One of them is in Greek. The rest are in Hebrew or Aramaic. The Greek version doesn't translate the name of the Lord, doesn't translate Yahweh as Kyrios, like Greek manuscripts usually do in the Septuagint. So instead of um, translating it as Kyrios, it just copies over the Tetragrammaton, the yod heh vav And so, except it's in Paleo-Hebrew, which is the most ancient uh, writing style of the Hebrew language that we uh, have today, that we know about today. So you're reading this Greek copy of Jonah, and then all of a sudden you get to the name of the Lord, and it says Yahweh. So there you go. You have, even in the Greek-speaking communities, the name of Yahweh being made known. Very well, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, Nick, why don't we talk about Jonah himself, the man? What do we know about Jonah? He is one of the two main characters in the book of Jonah. The other character is, uh, main character is God. <laughs> um, but Jonah, he's one of the main characters. His name means dove. He's son of Amittai. Amittai means truth. And there's some who like to allegorize and go, oh, dove of truth. And I guess that's fun, but anyway. Um, <laughs> he hailed fun. from Gath Hefer. That's a city in the territory of Zebulun. From the biblical record, we find that Jonah was a prophet during the reign of Jeroboam II in Israel. You can read 2 Kings 14 and verse 25 for more on that. Um, so that means he lived during the 8th century BC. He's one of many prophets who were called to prophesy during the 8th century BC. Uh, his contemporaries include uh, Hosea, Amos, later in that century, Micah and, Is- uh, and Isaiah. So uh, he had already prophesied during this time that Israel's border would be restored. Hmm. Uh, so she'd get um, uh, her land back. So uh, that's a bit about Jonah. All right. We also know, like you said, that since Jonah, his ministry was in the reign of Jeroboam II, then we have a timeline for that. That places him in the 786 to 746 BC time frame, the 8th century, as you said. That's right. So that's a 40-year ministry. Yeah, that's right, at least, right? Good for him. Good for him. (laughs) (laughs) So every book that's written in our Bible, I guess every book ever written, but specifically in the Bible, has a purpose behind it. There's an occasion as to why it's written. Alex, talk to us a bit about the occasion and purpose of the book of Jonah. Okay, so the occasion and purpose often go hand in hand with the date of authorship. So 
uh, just like the date of authorship, and so it is in this case. It, it just becomes another guessing game. Um, but I'll give you my spin on it, right? I could totally be wrong. I'm just throwing it out there. Every Gentile in this story comes out looking like a champion of faith, while the prophet of Israel himself falls flat on his face. The people of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah, I think probably around 760 BC. It fits that window, fits that time frame. And so at that point in time, they become somewhat familiar with Yahweh. Now, we know that North Israel will go into Assyrian captivity about 40 years later in 720 BC or 721 BC. But then later, even after that, Nineveh will fall. It will be destroyed by the Babylonians around 612 BC. So that means that from captivity to destruction of Nineveh, there was a growing community of Israelites for over 100 years in Nineveh. But even before that, because of Jonah's preaching, there was a community of Ninevites who were somewhat familiar with Yahweh. So in this time frame, this leading up to exile, the North Israel exile into Assyrian captivity, not the Babylonian exile, don't want to be confusing there. We have this uh, time frame, and we looked at the book of Tobit from the Apocrypha last week. His story fits in that time frame. And we noticed from the book of Tobit that uh, Tobit's son, Tobias, makes it out of Nineveh in time before the destruction by listening to the preaching of Nahum. So even when Nineveh does fall in 612 BC, there probably was uh, a group of, of Israelites, maybe a lot of Israelites, who were living there in Nineveh when it fell, when it was destroyed. So what if the book of Jonah was written in response to Nineveh's destruction in 612 BC? Maybe this unknown author would be looking at the ashes of Nineveh, possibly acknowledging the city's rightful downfall because it was evil, but also at the same time not wanting the downfall of the city to be the only thing remembered in history. What if the author wants the world to remember that at one time an entire city truly repented at the most unpersuasive sermon ever preached? I think the author was... Uh, perhaps some displaced Israelite, possibly a former resident of Nineveh, writing to show that the community he lived in was not always evil, and that his own people, Israel, deserve worse than what Nineveh received when you compare the way in which the Gentiles responded in faith to the way that Israel responded to God's many, 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 many prophets by hardening their hearts all the more. That's what I think was the occasion and purpose of the book. It's in response to Nineveh's destruction to show that there was faith at one time among this community. And um, even Israelites under captivity were able to flourish to an extent and to be faithful while in captivity there. That's my uh, two cents, and it might be worth zero cents, but I, don't, <laughs> no. but I hope it makes sense. No, it makes sense. That's, that's good stuff. Well, Nick, what do we know about Nineveh then? So... The greatness of the city of Nineveh is emphasized uh, multiple times in this book. Um, it's called that great city in 1 verse 2. The greatness is again emphasized in 3 verse 2 and also verse 3 there. Um, here, the greatness is connected with the severity of the evil of the city. Later on, it's going to emphasize the size of uh, the 
territory that city covers. Hmm. But the mission throughout all this is to call out against Nineveh because their evil has come up before me. That's what God says there in 1 verse 2. Right. So uh, commentators note that archaeology confirms the biblical witness to the wickedness of the Assyrians. Uh, They were well known in the ancient world for brutality and cruelty. Ashurbanipal, the grandson of Sennacherib, was accustomed to tearing off the lips and hands of his victims. Tiglath-Pileser flayed victims alive and made great piles of their skulls. And so these are vicious people, and it's to these vicious people that God sends a prophet with a message of repentance and grace and mercy. And so uh, we can even go a bit further. Uh, you mentioned Nahum earlier. We know from Nahum, he goes, he delves even deeper into just how vicious and wicked this nation was, Nineveh being that wicked capital. Um, he, not Nahum, he documents the very sordid history of violence that the nation had perpetrated against other nations. He calls Nineveh the bloody city in 3 verse 1. Guilty of unceasing evil, 3 verse 17. Specifically, Nineveh is full of deceit, guilty of carnage and slaughter, and full of the dark arts and magical practices, and that's 3 verses 1 through 4 in the book of Nahum. So all around, these are very bad, no good, awful, terrible people, all right? (laughs) Uh, It's just a, a wicked nation. Uh, so that's that's a bit about what we know about Nineveh, but you have some more to add to that, don't you, Alex? Yeah, I'm going to give some information I found from an article written by Paul Ferguson. It was in the Tyndale Bulletin, um, 47.2, it's November 1996. So there's your reference if you want to check these. Um, it's online in digital form, PDF. So the Nineveh of Jonah's day would have looked a little different than the Nineveh of Nahum's day. So Nineveh as a city did not become the Assyrian royal capital until 705 BC. So remember, Jonah's in Nineveh around 760 BC, that time frame. So in 705 under Sennacherib, it becomes the royal capital. Uh, Now, if Jonah is um, preaching around that 786 to 746 period, the reign of Jeroboam II, that would make Nineveh one of three royal cities, but not the capital. The capital would have been Kala. Um, and here's a quick note that actually makes a difference in the interpretation of the book. At, uh, we know from Assyrian literature and from different writings and archaeological discoveries that uh, when the Assyrians talked about a province or a city, the term was interchangeable. So the city didn't just mean the part with the walls around it, but also the surrounding area in which... Uh, a provincial ruler was placed. So a province would include not just the walled city itself, but also the surrounding area. And so the name city and province were interchangeable in Assyrian literature. So this would explain why it took Jonah three days to journey uh, through Nineveh, to walk through it, because he's talking about the provincial area. Now, this is tied to the idea of who is the king of Nineveh, because the king of Nineveh is mentioned in Jonah 3, 6, And this title is significant because it doesn't say the king of Assyria, and you would think it was the king of Assyria, but it was not. It was the king of Nineveh. This is because the king of Nineveh 
is probably the provincial ruler over the province of Nineveh and not the actual king of the empire. So when he makes this decree of fasting and repentance, uh, his decree would likely not have reached throughout the Assyrian empire. So here's a quick historical note that goes into this. From 786 to 746 BC, the Assyrian empire was ruled by a few nobles who just paid lip service to the king of Assyria. But the nobles basically acted like kings over their provinces. So notice how in Jonah 3.7 it says the king and his nobles. The governor of Nineveh is the noble or the king of Nineveh. And in 789, um, we know that the governor was a guy named Ninurta Mukin Ahi. Sounds like a fish from Hawaii, but it's not. It's the governor of Nineveh in 789. In 761, the governor was a guy named Nabu Mukin Ahi. So Nabu Mukin Ahi was perhaps the guy we're, we're looking at here in the book of Jonah. And these are good candidates for Jonah's king of Nineveh. So what's the point of all this background information? The point is the book of Jonah contains highly specific language that accurately corresponds to true history. That's a difficult feat to achieve if the story was made up hundreds of years later, if it's just an allegory or something to try to teach some classic moral lesson, then first of all, made-up stories like that don't really try to be that accurate when it comes to history. And second of all, you would have to be pretty close to the actual historical events in order to have that little bit of knowledge to know that during this time period, there was this state in which the Assyrian Empire was ruled by provincial rulers and nobles, and they lifted themselves up as kings. So, Book of Jonah is very accurate. The history of Assyrian cruelty, Nick, um, it's it's undeniable. You mentioned some pretty terrible things. Um, and not all that stuff would have been going on at the time of Jonah. Um, Nineveh's evil at the time of Jonah. That's, that's uh, what the book says, so we can't deny that. Uh, but it might not be to the extent that we read of later, like Sennacherib and Ashurbanipal and Tiglath-Pileser III. Uh, Tiglath-Pileser III, he takes over in 745 BC, and that's when a really strong, unified monarchy comes into place. And that dude was pretty evil, and so were the successor uh, kings after him. So this is the way you see Assyrian history unfolding this is kind of the spot Nineveh was in when Jonah shows up. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Uh, one of the things that um, folks may run across when they're studying, especially that phrase, King of Nineveh, is uh, some have made the connection to other places in Scripture, like 1 Kings 21, verse 1, where the king of Israel is called the king of Samaria, or Second uh, Chronicles 24, verse 23, where Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, he's designated king of Damascus. So you do have um, precedent that's uh, elsewhere in Scripture for kind of this, I guess, uh, abbreviated way of talking about a king over a nation, but specifically tying them to a city. And um, and it usually has to do with, yeah, they're, they're probably very weak. They don't have a unified em- empire. Um, for about 36 years there, which would be the time when uh, the timeline fits with Jonah, 781 to 745 BC, Assyria is, you're, just like you said, they're very tenuous uh, in, in, and very loose in how they are constituted. 
Um, so, uh, yeah, folks may run across that as well. And it's it's. I mean, Jonah gets it right though. He gets yep. the history right, and that's he gets the terminology right, and that's impressive. Um, it means the story is probably an accurate story that was passed down through time until it was put, you know, inked parchment, right? Or stone or whatever they were writing on. But <laughs> Well, Nick, Jonah goes down to Joppa in order to flee from the Lord. He's wanting to sail to Tarshish. What do we know about Joppa and Tarshish? Well, uh, as far as Tarshish is concerned, it's basically the other side of the known world, as best we can tell. Um, Tartus, Tartusus is in the table of nations. You read in uh, Genesis chapter 10, verse 4. It's often identified as a place in southern or southwestern Spain. Uh, so uh, that's that's a bit about Tarshish. What about Joppa? Joppa is just 30 miles uh, slightly northwest of Jerusalem. It's right on the coastline of the Mediterranean Sea. That's why Jonah is looking for a boat to get out of town. Uh, in the book of Acts, Peter finds himself in the same town of Joppa while struggling with his own Jew-Gentile hang-ups. Uh, Tarshish is um, somewhere. It existed yeah. somewhere. <laughs> Actually, it's hard to say where. Nobody knows exactly. There were several cities with names that sounded like Tarshish that were known in the ancient world and also known for exporting metals, which is kind of the one of the clues we get in the other verses about Tarshish and Solomon getting a lot of gold and silver and iron and tin from Tarshish. Um, some of the Septuagint copies that we have render Tarshish as Carthage, hmm. the Carthaginians. And Josephus, uh, if you read through his story of Jonah, he renders Tarshish as Tarsus of Cilicia, which is, uh, if you recognize that name, that's the birthplace of the Apostle Paul. Uh, some modern scholars have also proposed the island of Sardinia, which is just south of Italy. And it could also have been uh, Tartessus, which is in southern Spain, the other side of the known world. Whichever you choose, it was a location that Jonah thought was sufficient to flee from the presence of the Lord. Now, don't be too hard on Jonah's logic here. We often say you can't, you know, God's presence is everywhere because he's omnipresent. But Jonah likely did not believe in the philosophical notion of omnipresence. That wasn't part of his framework. I don't think that was a part of the ancient Israelite framework. Yahweh's territory was Israel. That was his territory. He ruled over that. That was his inheritance. And the Gentile nations had been given over by Yahweh to be ruled by the other gods. So Jonah was going to unholy space, not holy space, but unholy space where Yahweh was not ruling over those other places. So Jonah really did think he was fleeing from the presence of God. Well, but he does say in verse 9, though, he he, meant, he says, I fear Yahweh, God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. So, I mean, he, he recognizes the creator. Right, right. He recognizes Yahweh as the creator. But, but you're making the, a distinction there. Right, but okay. Yahweh, the creator, gave all of humanity over to other deities at the Tower of Babel, and he divided them according to their language and according to the sons of God, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 7 and 8. And so in those places, you don't have Yahweh's people or territory because Yahweh made his own people out of Abraham. 
Israelites weren't at the Tower of Babel. He created them later to be his inheritance. And then he gave the rest of the nations over to the sun, moon, and the stars, Deuteronomy 4.17, uh, or 19. Yeah, Deuteronomy 4.19 through 21. So in, in I think in Jonah's mind, he does think he's fleeing from Yahweh's territory and that Yahweh won't get to him in these other spots. But at the same time, these other evil beings can get to him. So Jonah's pretty desperate here. Let's Lots talk about verse 4, um, where he's actually on the sea in the boat with the, uh, with the crew, and the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. What does it mean, Alex, for God to hurl a great wind? It almost sounds like you know God's doing a big wind-up with his 90-mile-per-hour uh, fastball. Yeah. Uh, I think this is uh, language tipping the reader off that something supernatural is happening. This isn't a natural wind, a natural storm, something supernatural. God is hurling this great wind. And here's an interesting note. In the Second Temple literature, which uh, would fit the writing of, of Jonah, if Jonah was written in the Second Temple era, in Second Temple literature, it's filled with this idea that the elements, the weather, that these things are controlled by supernatural beings, like you can call them angels if you want. And that makes sense because Psalm 104 verse 4 says that angels are ministering spirits of wind and fire. And even in some of the uh, pseudepigraphic literature, there are wind demons, demons who show up and control giant destructive winds. Um, So when they're talking about these elemental weather things in the Old Testament, you got to kind of keep that in mind that they're connecting that to the spirit realm. Yeah, and the, there's a lot of um, personification of inanimate objects throughout this section. Um, we're gonna, you'll find that the boat. Uh, one of the things it said about the boat is it was it was determined to break apart. So it's almost as if the ship was thinking to itself that it was going to to come apart. Um, and so in this case, while, you know, a storm at sea, that's that's kind of a, a normal thing, I guess. But here in this case, um, for it to, it's as if God, you're right, is winding up and throwing this thing. And, uh, and it, it <clears throat> unlike, unlike Jonah, everything in this story is obedient to the will of Yahweh which is in itself fascinating. Right. Well, and even in the midst of this boat breaking up, you would think that these um, seasoned sailors would know when it's time to be afraid and when it's just a normal storm that they can weather out. And these guys are terrified. In fact, when it comes down to it and they finally uh, listen to Jonah and throw him overboard, they pray to Yahweh, they sacrifice to Yahweh, um, they make vows to Yahweh, how did Nick? How did the sailors know how to pray and sacrifice to Yahweh? Aren't these Gentiles? Sure, they are. They are pagans through and through. Um, prayer, I think, is easy um, to make the connection. Jonah had told them the name Yahweh in his explanation of who he was, why he was there. Um, I fear Yahweh, God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Uh, sacrifice, I think, is a bit trickier to make the connection. Uh, the type of sacrifice, and also connected to that, the vows, um, they're not specified. So <clears throat> either 
uh, either the cultic rituals of the Israelites that they performed for Yahweh um, were well known, that even pagans knew what to do, or they just offered what they thought a god like Yahweh would want based on their religious cultic practices. I'm inclined to lean toward the latter because you do get a lot of the, um, well, who knows, right? Uh, Those kinds of questions in Jonah. They they really don't know what God, what Yahweh wants, but we're going to give them whatever we can in the hopes that it'll appease them. And it does. It it seems as though the, the sacrifices of all the Gentiles in this story, they they're accepted by Yahweh. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And whatever it was that they did or that maybe Jonah told them to do, they were willing and glad to do it. And again, that contrast between the Gentile faith and the faithless Jonah. Now, um, Nick, let's get into the good stuff here. Yeah. Verse 17, uh, something swallowed Jonah and what was it? What swallowed Jonah? So Jonah has been thrown into the sea. That's the solution that they were kind of cornered into in order to make this storm stop. And it does. It's, it's as if as soon as Jonah uh, touches the water, the storm goes away. So he sinks down, down, down. And even though he's in the middle of the sea, he's not forgotten by Yahweh, uh, who is uh, creator of everything. So Yahweh appointed or prepared or provided, depending upon your translation, a great fish. And in the uh, Septuagint, it is a sea monster. Uh, That's how it can be translated. That's what swallows Jonah. So all we really know for sure is this was a large, unspecified fish that Yahweh sent so that's that's what I got. <laughs> well, I will throw this out there as we continue to dive into this uh, fascinating um, question. But as of <laughs> two thousand, ah, uh, you got. I didn't even mean to do that. I'm so punny. <laughs> as of 2018, more than 80 percent of our ocean remains unmapped, unobserved, and unexplored. You're kidding. More than 80 percent. And so when the Septuagint says great sea monster, I think I'm just going to stick with that. It was a great sea monster. (laughs) Um, Nick, could it have really happened? Did that really happen to Jonah? Was he really swallowed by a fish? Did he really uh, survive three days in the belly of the fish or the sea monster? Or is this allegory? Is this a parable? So you and I both take an historical approach toward the book of Jonah, and so we believe that this is true uh, historical narrative, that this was an an historical event that took place. Uh, Not everybody buys into that. There's a lot of people, a lot of scholars who tend to look at Jonah as like um, um, tragedy or comedy, as like a fictitious play of sorts. Um, so just for the listener, you're going to run across that kind of stuff. Um, but that's not where we land uh, with this. Is it possible that a large unspecified fish really did swallow Jonah and he survived for three days? Yes. Um, there have been documented cases historically that have shown that a man can be swallowed by... Um, 
uh, in this particular case that I'm thinking of, a sperm whale, and survive being in the beast for several hours. The curious case that um, I ran across, uh, reported by the Princeton Theological Review. Princeton, it's prestigious, right? Uh, The curious case of James Bartley in 1891 swallowed by a sperm whale spent approximately 38 hours 36 hours in the creature before uh, his fellow crewmen finally dug him out of the stomach of the beast he was alive he was driven somewhat insane by the whole thing but after about two weeks he was fully recovered and his skin it was affected it remained bleached due to the whale's stomach acid but um so there's that. Leaving off that, even if we, you know, wanted to, and I, I, I think there's cause to even doubt whether or not this Princeton Theological Review reported case is historical and accurate, even if we leave that stuff off, we must not forget God had ordained this great fish to swallow his misguided prophet. And Jesus validated this event as historical. He cited it in reference to his resurrection, Matthew 12, Luke 11. Um, Without a doubt, Jonah was in the stomach of this large fish when he voiced his prayer. And so I'm inclined to see miraculous divine intervention on behalf of the wayward prophet. Um, Alex, what do you think? All right. You're right. We both see it as a historically true account. Now, the James Bartley story that you mentioned, the man swallowed by the sperm whale, uh, survived 36 hours, all that stuff. I'm not sure if I buy that story. Come on, it's uh, Princeton. <laughs> um, Ivy League. Yeah. So the 1800s, uh, they were riddled with tabloid headlines, much like today's National Enquirer. Um, there were no pictures of this. There were no follow-up interviews with James Bartley. Um, not going into the evidence to the contrary, I will admit, though, that it is possible to be swallowed by a sperm whale. I just don't think that what we see here in Jonah is a sperm whale. Sure. I think it's a different thing that swallowed Jonah. It was a sea monster, and it's, I, I believe, a part of the 80% of the ocean left unexplored. The sea monster listens and obeys its creator. And uh, so how do I then, you know, unfold this? So here's where it gets really exciting this brings us to our tough text of the day and the tough text has to do with jonah's prayer what exactly he says here's the question did jonah die this is a part of the idea is like well what is sheol what is he talking about there but the tough text is did jonah die yeah um so something he did uh i don't (laughs) i can see how folks get there. I just, I can't get there. Um, I, I believe he survived three days alive in the belly of the large fish. Um, and so when he, in this highly figurative poetic prayer, and it's one of the greatest prayers ever prayed in the Old Testament, by the way, uh, whenever he prays and he says things like, uh, you know, I, I went down to Sheol, I think that's just poetry and, and highly figurative. Um, Jonah no more actually went to Sheol than he went to the, as he calls it, the roots of the mountains. Um, Heart of the sea, that's another one, uh, another highly poetic phrase. All this is, I'm I'm persuaded, it's to be understood as poetic. Um, It's as if he came back from the dead. 
Um, had it not been for Yahweh, he was as good as dead. Uh, one of the things that he says in verse 7, when my life was fainting away or ebbing away, uh, it didn't faint away or ebb away entirely, but um, uh, he, was, he was as good as dead except for Yahweh's intervention in his life. So that's where I fall. Alex, you say? I'm going to go the complete opposite direction. <laughs> right on. <laughs> so I think Jonah did indeed die. And you bring up some good points, so we'll mention those. I think the sea monster swallowed Jonah after he died in the sea. So I think he is crying out from the uh, depth of Sheol, you know, the realm of disembodied spirits, which they believed to be under the earth and connected to all the waters of the earth. So Jonah's body, it, it did lay in the heart of the sea and in the deep and having already been engulfed by the currents and the breakers and the billows, he drowned. So I, he's recounting what happened to him. So the roots of the mountains are at the bottom of the sea. That's where the seaweeds are and that's where his head was wrapped up with seaweed. It says that his life was brought up from the pit. The pit, that's underworld language. He died. Jonah throws up a last second prayer before he dies, though. His spirit descends into the underworld, and then God has a sea monster swallow his dead body. So just as the tomb swallowed Jesus' dead body, so the sea monster swallowed Jonah's dead body. But then after three days, a resurrection so the prayer that Jonah gives from the belly of the sea monster is after his resurrection, where he recounts what just happened to him, and the sea monster vomits him up on dry land. His body was likely all burned up from stomach acid, and that, that's a note I'll comment on later, but you had mentioned, you know, my life was ebbing away, my life was fainting away. But he says, my life was fainting away, and then I remembered the Lord. And so it doesn't mean that he couldn't have died. It just means that as he was about to die, he was able to throw up this last second prayer of repentance. So let's keep unfolding this. Nick, what is the pit? How does ancient cosmology read into that verse in verse 6? Um, so down, down, down he went into the deep, to the roots of the mountains, um, even to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Um, and you're right, that is all language to describe the underworld, uh, the unseen realm of disembodied spirits, Sheol. Uh, and that pit seems to be synonymous with that. Now, it's interesting, they had their idea of Sheol was it was a fort, a fortress that did have gates or bars. And so, right. um, again, you all this... You can go in, but you can't come out. Hotel right, California. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you can never leave. All of this highly figurative poetic language is used to describe, for me, Jonah's near-death experience. The pit is Sheol. That's the netherworld. I agree. This is highly poetic language to describe his actual death experience. <laughs> <laughs> um, by the way, just a couple of verses on gates and bars that, that Sheol is said to have had. Isaiah 38, verse 10, Job 17, verse 16. You can check those out for yourself. Um, I build my church on this rock, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. There you go. Good one. Hey, Nick, is Jonah referring to the earthly or heavenly temple in verse 7? What, what's he talking about there? So, 
The way this gets translated, here's my English standard. My prayer came to you into your uh, holy temple. Wait a minute. That's not it, is it? Where are we? Verse. Yeah, that's it. Verse 7. Um, other versions, the way they translate this, they read it as, I thought I would never again see your holy temple. And I think that's a good way of translating it. And that brings in verse um, 4. So we're looking at verse 4 and 7, right? Yeah, you're right. Verse 4 also. Yeah, yet I shall again look upon your holy temples, what my English standard says. But yeah, I thought I'd never see it again. So um, the surrounding context, three, verse th- all, starting at verse 3 all the way down through verse uh, 7, is Jonah lamenting his plight in the deep. It's a uh, declaration of confidence in one day again seeing the temple. I'm persuaded to see here the earthly temple then. Um, uh, Both the Septuagint, Dead Sea Scrolls, they read this in agreement with what you'll read in the New Revised Standard Version as a rhetorical question. Shall I indeed Look again towards your holy temple. This is a wistful plea of a man wondering if he's going to live or die. He just so happens to live in my perspective. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think he lives too, just after he dies. (laughs) (laughs) After his resurrection. That's right, after his resurrection. So if I were to look at it uh, from, you know, the things I've been saying right now, verse 4, I would say he's talking about the earthly temple, but verse 7, his prayer comes up into the heavenly temple. But there's a reason why it's one it's the earthly one in verse 4 and then the heavenly one in verse 7. I think Jonah is looking toward the temple while drowning in the sea. So he's throwing up this last second prayer while drowning in the sea in order to direct his last second prayer of repentance towards the temple in Jerusalem. Now remember 2 Chronicles chapter 6 verses 38 through 39 when Solomon said a prayer to dedicate the temple. And in that prayer He asks God to hear his people when they have sinned and gone into captivity, that if they repent and pray towards the temple, then God would hear from heaven and be gracious. So they're praying toward the earthly temple, but God would hear from his heavenly temple and forgive and be gracious if it was a truly repentant prayer. So Jonah is acknowledging his judgment. He's repenting. He's praying towards the temple for forgiveness in verse 4. And that prayer made its way up to the heavenly temple in verse 7, where God heard it, had a sea monster swallow his dead body, and then resurrected him. (laughs) (laughs) But here's a curious verse. In verse 8, it almost doesn't seem to fit. It talks about idols, how those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. How does this connect, Nick? Why would Jonah mention idols in his prayer in uh, chapter 2, verse 8? I I see here a contrast, kind of like what we saw back in chapter 1, how the other gods that these um, sailors, these mariners, what they were, they were calling out to their gods and their gods wouldn't answer. They were powerless Uh, versus everything, except, of course, for his prophet. Everything is subservient and obedient to Yahweh. So I think it's just, it's intended as a contrast. What do you think? I think Jonah is remembering the idolatry of his own people in Israel. And because it says those who regard those idols forsake their faithfulness. Well, Gentiles never had a faithfulness in Yahweh, so they can't forsake it. And so regarding vain idols, I think is a, is a special note for himself and his own people. And so he's promising in his prayer 
he says as the follow-up verse 9 but i contrast i will sacrifice with the voice of thanksgiving i will pay what i have vowed so he promises not to be like the unfaithful people of his own uh of his own race of his own hometown he promises to hear the lord to repent to keep his vows to stay faithful so he has to acknowledge that israel is acting more unfaithful than the gentile sailors who just made vows to yahweh for saving them on the ship so this is an image of Jonah having to learn the lesson that all of Israel needed to learn. But here's the question, Nick. Will it stick? Will it yep. stick? Yep. What do you think Jonah vowed in verse 9? Uh, it's not explicitly stated. Um, could have been his commitment to fulfill his calling as a prophet. That's the best I can do with that. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And it could be connected to something that he would have actually gone and fulfilled at the temple, some sort of sacrifice, perhaps, that's that right. vow language. Now, that brings up another question, though. So verse 210, the fish, sea monster, vomits Jonah up. And then chapter 3, verse 1, the very next verse, he gets this call to go proclaim in Nineveh. Now, is there a time gap between verse 210 and 3-1? I don't think so. I see the narrative picking up right where we expected it to go way back in 1 verse 1. What we anticipated was with the call and commissioning of Jonah was for Jonah to arise and go. He didn't do that. He ran. In this case, though, he does. He arose and went to Nineveh. So I I don't see a time gap here. What say you? I think there has to be some sort of time gap. Here's why. If he was vomited up on the shores of the Mediterranean coast— Although Josephus says he was vomited up on the shores of the Black Sea, like way up north. Um, hmm. if, if, but if he was, if he was vomited on the Mediterranean co- coast, either way, I think he made his way back to the temple to pay his vow. It goes into that previous question. Whatever he vowed, I think he made his way back to Jerusalem, paid his vow at the temple. And so there was at least a time gap for traveling since um, Jerusalem was you know, 30 miles from Joppa, so there's a little time gap there to go pay his vow. But from Joppa to Nineveh, even if we went straight from Joppa to Nineveh or from the coast of the Mediterranean to Nineveh, we're still talking about an 800-mile journey inland from the coast. And so it's a long trip. And uh, so you got to at least account for the travel time for when he uh, gets vomited up to when he actually shows up in Nineveh. But when he does show up in Nineveh, Nick, the people believe very quickly. Now, why did the people of Nineveh believe so quickly? It doesn't tell us. What I found was, one commentator explained it this way. He wrote that uh, before Jonah arrived, um, two plagues had erupted in Nineveh, uh, one in 765, one in 759 BC. There had been a total eclipse of the sun that had occurred on June 15th, 763. Hmm. And so these would have been considered as signs for the people of divine anger. And that may explain why the Ninevites responded so readily to Jonah's message um, at approximately the roughly the same time. Um, so perhaps the signs and wonders played a role in preparing what was probably a superstitious pagan culture for the doomsday message of Jonah. Um, I'm also inclined to see here that perhaps this is a testimony to um, the Word of God, how it has always been 
living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, uh, as we read about in Hebrews 4 and verse 12. This is the powerful working of the Word of God, even in people who know virtually nothing about Him. Uh, What do you think? I think all of those are really good answers, Nick. And I'm not going to give a different answer. I'm going to say that yes, you're correct, and I want to add another thing on top of that, right? So get well, this. It's about time I'm right today. <laughs> <laughs> well, get this. Just like Jesus's body had scars left from his crucifixion after he was mm-hmm. resurrected, mm-hmm. what do you think Jonah's body looked like after being inside a sea monster for three days? Yeah. Right? It was probably pretty gross. Maybe he looked like a walking zombie. So the sailors, they would have had to dock uh, after the storm calmed, because remember, they had left from Joppa. Maybe they went and docked back at Joppa, but they had to throw all their cargo and supplies overboard to lighten the ship. And so they're not going to finish their journey wherever they were going. So if they're going to dock back at shore, um, do you think the sailors are telling their story, like the greatest sailor story they've ever heard <laughs> that they just right. experienced? You bet. And it probably started to spread. Then Jonah shows up. And people are probably asking what happened to him. And they put two and two together about the fantastical sailor story floating around, and boom, you have the making of an area-wide sensation. I think this story could have easily made its way to Nineveh before Jonah even showed up. And then when he does show up, I think people's jaws just drop as they see the living dead prophet show up at their front door. (laughs) That would make a good movie, right? (laughs) Yeah, that's right. (laughs) So he shows up, he preaches, the people repent quickly, and then the king of Nineveh says, you know, who knows, maybe God can change his mind, maybe Yahweh will change his mind. And he's saying, repent for everybody. Jonah didn't even say repent. He just said you're going to be destroyed. That's right. But the king says, who knows, maybe if we repent, God will change his mind. Why do you think, why do you think the king of Nineveh would think that God can change his mind? So the, the operative phrase there is, who knows, right? Um, that's the king's question, who knows? It's reminiscent of what we saw earlier back in 1 verse 6 with the captain of the ship saying, perhaps or wow. maybe uh, we can, uh, uh, that God will hear. So again, the pagans, they don't really know what they can do to appease Yahweh's wrath. But they do hold to this philosophy something is better than nothing. They are hopeful that whatever they do, it will cause them not to perish. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And those are statements of extreme faith, like very faithful statements. They don't even know if this will work and they're going to do it anyway. That's walking by faith. Uh, I think there's another part of this, right? So I'm going to lay my cards out on the table here. I think that because the the king thinks that God can change his mind because God can change his mind. Right. You read the Bible from front to back, and you find a God who not only can change his mind, but he does change his mind, and he relents in his plans of judgment. Go back and look at all the times Moses talked him out of wiping out Israel and starting over with just Moses. Neither the king of Nineveh nor the ancient Israelites knew of a Yahweh who never changed his mind on anything. That's a philosophical construct, and it's one of our own making. And so I try to just peel that back when we're going back into the Word, into the Old Testament, and just let it be what it is. That's my thought on there. 
That's good stuff. 3 verse 10, when God saw what they did, what the Ninevites did, they did some sort of deeds. Alex, what sort of deeds did the Ninevites perform? Well, it wasn't just fasting and prayer, because it already mentions that. It must have been deeds in keeping with repentance. Remember John the Baptist when he commands such deeds to follow the repentance of Israelites in the New Testament, preparing the way for the Lord? These deeds then... I think the mentioning of it, it gives us a better clue as to what kind of evil Nineveh needed to repent from. And I think it was the internal strife and evil committed against each other in the city, in the province. Not necessarily the evils of the empire or imperialism itself that would later characterize Assyria for the rest of history. So perhaps uh, some of their deeds, they likely got rid of some idols, made restitution for wrongs done to each other, for stealing, perhaps showed alms to the poor, things like that. These are common deeds associated with repentance that shows up in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. So Nick, um, Jonah sees that there is this massive reform going on in Nineveh, and he just sounds so, so bitter. Why is Jonah so bitter? Verse 1, it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. So, I mean, just the scene itself. As the Ninevites repent of their evil, Yahweh relents of his evil that he had declared for Nineveh, the disaster. And all of this is regarded as evil by Jonah. That's <laughs> that's how this all plays out. Um, so Jonah, he becomes angry with God. It's just this stunning twist. Um, Previously, Yahweh had fierce anger toward Nineveh, and that's been diverted. Only now Jonah has become angry over Yahweh's grace. The contrast here between this prayer here in 4 verses uh, 2 and 3 and the prayer way that we read back in 2 verses 2 through 9, the contrast is striking. Yeah. Here, Jonah is defiant. He begins, please Yahweh. Uh, That's what the New American Standard Bible says. And um, one commentary uh, by a guy named Carey, Philip Carey, he talks about how uh, he reads Jonah as a tragic comedy. And so how this could be translated is, please tell me you're not serious, something like that. Um, That's... That's the defiance there. Jonah is self-centered. Um, in the <clears throat> English Standard Version, the, the personal pronouns of I, me, my, they appear eight times in the original. I believe it's nine. And though addressed to Yahweh, this prayer is all about Jonah. It's all about him. And he interprets his actions that we saw way back at the beginning while he was still in his country. During his flight to Tarshish, he knew the God of Israel. He had fled from his prophetic office way back in chapter 1 because he knew Yahweh's gracious nature. Uh, and that that is rooted, by the way, um, all throughout the, the Hebrew Bible, uh, going all the way back to Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. It's elsewhere, Numbers 14, 18, Psalm 145, verse 8, Joel 2, verse 14. So Jonah has this knowledge of the identity of Yahweh. It comes from Yahweh's self-revelation of himself um, in the Torah. 
So Jonah, he knows his Bible. He knows Yahweh is a God of grace and mercy. He knows he is patient, long-suffering, full of covenantal, steadfast love. That Yahweh relents of impending disaster. One commentator explains, Jonah feared that all of these attributes of God would be extended toward the despicable, cruel Ninevites. Hmm. And then it happened. And the reader is left to wonder, what happened to Jonah's declaration way back in 2 verse 10 about salvation belongs to Yahweh? Did he only mean that his salvation or that (laughs) Israel's salvation belonged to Yahweh? But not the the salvation of the pagan nations? Um, And finally, in verse 3, Jonah, he longs for death. It'd be better if I died. Um, He says... Uh, there in verse 3. Death is better than life for Jonah. The one who had been saved from certain death, or again, as you uh, read it, Alex, he had been literally saved from death. He's become the one who wishes to die or to die again, right? Again, just depends on how you read it. Whatever ground had been gained by his conversion in chapter 2, it seems to have been lost because he is angry over God's grace. So, Again, we're left to wonder, why is Jonah so outraged? Why is he disgusted with Yahweh? And that's he is. Right. Some have suggested that his anger stems from uh, a misguided nationalism, which could even be interpreted as racism and bigotry. Others have suggested that Jonah is just grossly embarrassed over being essentially made a fool for proclaiming destruction only to have the prophecy fail. It's also suggested that Jonah knows that Assyria will be the nation which brings about violent destruction upon the northern tribes of Israel. I think any one of those are uh, viable options. Yeah, maybe all Whatever of them. the case, yeah, whatever the case, the net result is a joyless Jonah at the salvation of God for Nineveh. Hmm. Wow. Well, it's a sad picture that we see there. And I'll, you almost kind of wonder, you get to verse 5, right? And he's yeah. he's looking out, uh, waiting to see what would happen in the city. I mean, if he didn't care whether the city was destroyed or not, he could have just he could just left. could just gone yeah, back gone to home. It. Yeah. Is he holding out hope for destruction? What do you think? It could be. I think, for me, the significance of this verse is in the word east. Hmm. He went out east of the city, and there's a motif that shows up early in the book of Genesis. Um, It it could be in view here. East usually signifies um, rebellion against God uh, or even exile. And so Jonah, he's he's pictured here in rebellion. He's pictured as... uh, Impose as, as imposing a, a an exile upon himself, um, and I mean in, in the larger picture of things, again, given probably the context of when this was written, the kingdoms of Israel, um, uh, the kingdom of Israel had already been taken east to Assyria um, for exile, and then we'll, we'll see also the kingdom of Judah that'll happen with Babylon as well. Um, so this could be a self-imposed exile where he attempts once again to get away from God. And so whether rebellion or exile could be both. Jonah finds a place to view the city and builds a shelter, and he's wanting to watch what God's going to do with Nineveh. Hmm. So by the way, uh, you, uh, just a quick 
overview of those Genesis passages, Adam and Eve, they're driven east of the Garden of Eden, 3 verse 24. After slaughtering his brother Abel, Cain, is, he settles east of Eden in 4 verse 16. The construction of the Tower of Babel happens because of the migration of people from the east, 11 verse 2. Hmm. So that, that could be what's in back of, he went out east of the city. You know, that's a good note, Nick, because often when the Bible, especially the Old Testament, mentions geography, there's some sort of theological messaging that is trying to be communicated in the geography, not just, um, you know, getting our mental mind maps in the right direction. Right. Very good, very good. Now, in verse 8, Nick, what does it mean that God appointed the wind and the sun? Yeah, this is the same word that we ran into way back in chapter 1 with the wind and the fish. It's God's sovereignty on display again. He controls the winds, the seas, the ship, the fish. Uh, Way back in chapters 1 and 2, he controls the plant, the worm, the scorching wind here in chapter 4. He appoints each of these to carry out his sovereign will. Mm -hmm. Yahweh is then the cosmic sovereign ruler. Nothing is outside of his control except for the will of man. Jonah he exercises his free will when he rebels back in chapter one, but also the sailors, they exercise their free will and they reluctantly hurl Jonah into the sea and then offer free will sacrifices. The Ninevites, as we saw back in chapter three, they exercise their free will, they repent. All of these acts are the result of people exercising their free will. And yet even in these acts of men, Yahweh is glorified, the sailors. Seeing the storm calmed, call on Yahweh, offer sacrifices. Though he takes some persuading, eventually Jonah comes around and he does the will of God. The Ninevites, they are convicted by the word of God and glorify him by the repentance. So all of this is intended to put on display, again, the sovereignty of God. What do you say, Alan? Yeah, I agree with that for sure. And uh, Since I mentioned it earlier with the wind, with the wind in chapter 1, I... Uh, I see the connection again that just like the wind was hurled by God, again, something supernatural is also being communicated. It's not a natural wind or a natural sun or a natural plant or a natural worm, all these things. This likely goes back to the ancient view that the sun and wind and other, all the other elements are controlled by elemental spirits who are under the rule of Yahweh, whether they like it or not. Sometimes even demons or fallen angels are spoken of as having similar attributes when it comes to controlling the elements. So kind of like uh, Storm from the X-Men. <laughs> so, And here's a side note. If Jonah's body is all messed up and scabbed from his time in the belly of the, the sea monster, then a cool shade plant would be extra relieving. And the scorching sun would be extra painful. So again, yeah. you see God going through great lengths to get Jonah to listen to him. So what makes Nineveh a great city anyway, Nick? You alluded this, to this in earlier questions, but it says it three times, chapter 1, verse 2, chapter 3, verse 3, chapter 4, verse 11. It says Nineveh is a great city. What makes it great? Uh, well, it depends on the context. Chapter sure. 1... It was the eat. It was great for the great evil within it. Um, elsewhere, the greatness seems to designate its size. Whether we're talking about um, the territory itself or the number of persons uh, within the city, um, 
Earlier in chapter 3, the text had said that Nineveh's size was three days' journey in breadth. Now, archaeologists, they have found that the circumference of the inner wall of Nineveh was less than eight miles. So the diameter of the city, which would be less than two miles, was hardly a three-day journey. And so this has led some to argue that the three days is not a reference to the uh, circumference of the city uh, or the diameter of the city or the circuit of the administrative districts, but instead is to be understood in reference to how long it would take Jonah to complete his prophetic assignment. Um, But I think you've already covered this when you talked about the provincial territory, the provincial area. Uh, Some scholars call that the uh, greater Nineveh. That would be the area encompassing the kind of the the four cities, Nineveh and its environs. Okay, so um, I think that's, again, it depends on the context, but uh, in Jonah, it can also have to do with just the city itself in terms of its territory or number of people. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, I like your uh, contextually driven answers. You know, you get a different aspect of the greatness of Assyria in each of those verses. Um, right, and, and this is likely referring to the entire province of Nineveh, not it's just inner walls, uh, like we mentioned earlier in the questions. And that, that makes sense in the way that uh, the king is referred to as the king of Nineveh as opposed to the king of Assyria. And I think something not to miss, though, is that what made the city great in God's eyes could simply be the fact that there are so many people there. In other words, their souls are still valuable to Yahweh, and even the animal life is still valuable to Yahweh. And that brings up a good question there. For verse 11, God talks about also much cattle. So, Alex, does God consider animal life when bringing judgment against a city? Well, that's a good question. I mean, since all living creatures are made by God, uh, and since the living creatures are likely to suffer as collateral damage in the wake of some great disaster or some judgment destruction that would come upon the city, then I would say, yeah, animals and man were made to live together, but man has this uh, ruling hierarchy. He is in charge of the creation that God has made, and he is to steward it. And so man has rulership over the animals to use the animals in beneficial ways for mankind. And now don't get me wrong. This doesn't excuse any kind of like sick and twisted stuff like bestiality or or weird science experiments, but it's safe to say that God loves the animals too, and he considers their life force as something uh, to take into account when he's going to judge a given area. Because sometimes judgments come in some sort of, we call it natural disaster, but really if it's a judgment from God, then it's a supernatural disaster. Right. And animals suffer in that as well. So God, it's safe to say God loves the animals too. He does consider their, their well-being, even though we are above them and we rule over them. Well, Nick, we're looking back at the book of Jonah, and let's go ahead and cross that bridge to the New Testament. What are some New Testament touch points? We've uh, we've kind of touched on a couple of them already. Uh, the one that jumps to my mind is Jesus uses the Jonah story, just as Jonah was three days, three nights in the belly of the fish, so um, the Son of Man will be three days, three nights in the heart of the earth. Uh, So Jesus used the Jonah story to point to his resurrection. Uh, So there's that connection. What else is there, Alex? If you read through the book of Acts, uh, you will see, I think in chapter 9 and 10, Peter is at Joppa, 
when he gets the call to go to the Gentiles. And he has that vision of the animals being laid down on the sheet. They're unclean. God says, eat. And he says, no, no, nothing unclean. It's his lesson to, for God to teach him that God can make them clean. And he has made them clean. And Peter is on this journey, right? Because he's in Joppa, which is, um, you know, an uncomfortable territory. You have some Gentile mixture going in there. He's staying at the house of a tanner. That's the tanning of animal skins. Uh, well, those are usually unclean animal skins. So un- Peter's already at a house with unclean animal skins there. So that's a little hmm. uncomfortable probably for him. And then he gets these visions, threefold vision from God. And then he has to go to this uh, Gentile's house. So Peter is pictured, though, in Joppa as the anti-Jonah. He does the opposite. Though he's struggling with God's cleansing and accepting of the faithful Gentiles, he doesn't run away from his calling. Instead, he runs to his calling, and he obeys the vision. He obeys the voice of the Lord. So that's one touch point. Another one is that uh, Jesus, when condemning the generation of his own uh, people in Israel and Jerusalem, he says that the people of Nineveh will rise up and judge this generation because they had Jonah as <laughs> their prophet yeah. and they still repented. They get the Messiah and they won't repent. So people of Nineveh will rise up and judge the generation of Jesus. Also the uh, rising up of the sea storm to accomplish God's purpose that Jonah was you know, on the boat, but it ends up bringing salvation to those sailors. You get the same motif Uh, this archetype in the New Testament when Jesus calms the sea because his disciples are in the boat with him but most of his disciples, what they used to do for a living? They're fishermen so they probably don't scare easily they know what is a normal storm and what's not a normal storm and they believe they're going to die Jesus calms the sea and it's full of supernatural language not just the calming itself but also the, the storm is full of supernatural language when you read back through it. So Jesus calming the sea, also Paul being transported to Rome at the end of the book of Acts, where you have this crazy storm that comes through and breaks up the boats and he's shipwrecked. Um, That leads to salvation for people on the island of, uh, what was the island he landed on? Was it Malta? Sounds right. I think that's right. But if you look at uh, 2 Corinthians, when Paul talks about all of his um, trials that he went through, he actually says he was shipwrecked three times. Three times he was shipwrecked. And once he even spent a night and a day in the deep, in the ocean, just floating around, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Hanging on to some floating boards. Magnum P.I. style. Yeah, so, I mean, um, there's probably, I think, some supernatural thing going in there. Because Paul is battling not flesh and blood, but the rulers and spirits, dominions in the heavenly realms. Well, Nick, um, those are the New Testament touch points I found. Let's end this on the... They're all good, by the way. Good one. Oh, thank you, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Let's end this on the take-home for Christians today. What significance does Jonah hold for the Christian today? Jonah's story deals a lot with the sovereignty of Yahweh, and even as Yahweh was sovereign over the events in Jonah's day, he continues to exert his sovereignty over his creation. Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 45, he makes his son rise on the evil and the good, sends rain on the just and the unjust. He's still in control of things. He's still in control of events. And yet, this sovereignty remains balanced with the free will of man. People continue to exert their free will, um, 
either in rebellion to the Lord or in obedience to Him. So some may take more persuading than others, but people can and are convicted by His Word and glorify God by repentance. So just as He was sovereign then, He continues to be sovereign today. What what are you taking home, Alex? Mm, I like that reminder of sovereignty, very powerful. For me, I'm taking away that God is both ruler of the living and the dead. And we put our hope in him for a resurrection from the dead. This touch point with Jesus' resurrection, whether you believe Jonah died or not, um, we do know that whatever the case is, it was a sign for Jesus' own resurrection. And we repent now. And we keep uh, doing these deeds that are in keeping with our repentance. So in this way, we learn from Jonah. We learn what not to do. (laughs) We learn that... (laughs) We focus on just what we need to do to be faithful Christians and not to focus on what we think God should do, right? So that can trip us up thinking like God should do this, God should do that. Why isn't God doing this? You can't go down that road for too long because you end up in this place of bitterness that Jonah ended up in. You just focus on what you need to do. God is just. He's righteous in all his ways. Continue to trust him. Focus on what you need to do doing these deeds and keeping with repentance, hoping in our own resurrection. And that's my takeaway, Nick. That's good stuff. I did have one more connection to the New Testament, and it was the older brother in the prodigal son Oh yeah. Um, parable who's angry at the Father's grace, and here's Jonah angry at God's grace. Mm. So many good connections. That is an extremely good connection. Wow. Good stuff. Well, I've uh, enjoyed the book of Jonah quite a bit. I hope... Our audience uh, can read through Jonah now, perhaps equipped with a few things and few perspectives they haven't seen before. That's our goal here, is to get you thinking about the Word, to get you into the Word. And that's what's important. Get your mind into the Word, pour yourself into it, pour the Word into your heart. Well, uh, any ideas what we're doing next, Nick? Nope, but I'm pretty sure this is our final podcast for 2018, and we'll... uh... We'll regroup in 2019. Okay, we'll see you guys next year. And uh, who knows what we'll do next. Maybe Nahum, maybe another New Testament book. If you have any suggestions, feel free to email us with uh, a question or a suggestion at swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. Swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. In the meantime, you can also go to the iTunes Store or the Google Play Store, search Swordplay. You'll find our podcasts there. Uh, the number of the episodes are there as well. Leave a review and help us get the word out about this podcast uh, as well. Be sure to subscribe and to repost to your social media if you find any of this helpful. And we will see you next time on another episode of Swordplay. Play.